This morning we're going to continue actually in our series through the book of John that we've been calling Sharing Life Like Christ, right? And so uh, in this series we've been looking at specific interactions that Jesus has with specific people throughout the book of John, and we've been uh, able to see his character on display, and we've been able to see the the questions that he asks people and the patience that he the patience that he demonstrates with particular people, specific people. Um, we've seen the values that Jesus has, right? We've been able to see the way that he navigates particular insecurities, egos, misdirections, and unbelief as he draws the people that he interacts with into the grace and truth of God. And so as we've seen how he interacts with them then, right, we get to take a deep look into the way that he interacts with us now, Because the same way that Jesus navigated their insecurities and their egos and their misdirections and their unbeliefs then is the same way that he navigates our insecurities, misdirections, unbelief, and ego today, right? Because we serve a living and interactive God, not just the idea of a God who lived a long time ago or a God that's distant and wound this world up and set it in motion and just said, okay, you guys figure it out. I'll be over here. I'll see you when you die. Like, that's not the God we serve, right? We serve a living God. We serve a Lord that, that, that uh, he knows us and he loves us and he invites us to know and love him on an extremely intimate and close uh, level, right? It's not distant. Despite the way this world would portray things, he's not distant. And so the point of this entire series has been about experiencing the true Jesus for who he truly is, not how this world presents him, and not even how we think he might be or how we think he should be, but how he truly is and who he truly is and what he's truly like. And so we want to let his word speak for itself as we behold and are encountered by the risen Christ. And so um, we want to receive And we want to surrender. And what we want to surrender to isn't just the truth of who he is, but the forgiveness that he offers and the life that he offers us and the love that he desires to lavish upon us. That's easier said than done, though, right? I mean, so to taste and see and to know and experience the goodness of God in Christ Jesus and then share that life that we've experienced in Christ with each other our city and beyond. That's, the, that's why we exist, what we do. This is who we are as a church. But again, in order to share life with others like Christ, which we've all been called to do, right? You first have to share life in Christ. Like you can't be a conduit of something to others that you have not experienced yourself. So it's all about the overflow. It's all about beholding Jesus, experiencing Jesus, being loved by Jesus, forgiven by Jesus, reconciled to Jesus, and fully satisfied in Christ alone. Because then and only then will every other relationship in your life find any kind of true fulfillment, including the relationship with your children, relationship with your spouse, relationship with your friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, all of these things they all flow directly out of our relationship with him. And so as I prepared this series, and I sort of mapped a course through these specific interactions in the book of John, um, I'd originally planned to hone in on Christ's interactions with two women named Mary, Mary and Martha this morning, right? If you're familiar with their story, you're like, yeah, that's a Mother's Day message. 
right? And that was, that was kind of my plan, right? I'm like, okay, we're going to go through this as we walk through it. We're going we're gonna to jump to Easter and look at some of the stuff with Pontius Pilate before Good Friday and all that stuff, and, and, and it mapped really well. And I'm like, and we'll come back and really give attention to Mary and Martha and that interaction. And so that is what I had planned, um, but as I prayed this week and as I continued to plan and prepare, I sensed the Lord had a different idea in mind. So he was like, in some ways, he was like, I want you to go in a different direction. But in other ways, he was like, I want you to keep going through John chapter 21. So last week, we walked through the first portion of John chapter 21, like the first section of the last chapter of the book of John. And we looked at the interaction between Jesus and his failed and ashamed disciple, Peter, who had recently denied that he even knew Jesus. And he, did it, he denied him three times. And so we saw how Jesus confronted Peter right in the midst of his stuff, and, and he did it with pure compassion. He didn't let it go underground. He, he addressed it, and he went there, but he did so with unwavering love, and he made Peter face and deal with the distance between him and Jesus. And we talked about how Jesus does this, right? He makes us face our stuff, because that's how much he loves us. He's not going to let that mess fester. And again, this morning... I, I was going to shift gears and drop back to the interaction with Mary and Martha, um, and then I was going to address this next and final passage in the book of John later on. Because this final passage is about Christ's interaction with the apostle John himself, the author of this gospel account, the account of um, Christ's life, death, and resurrection through the eyes of the Apostle John. That's the guy who's writing this. And so the truth is, honestly, like when you think about the interaction between John and Jesus in the book of John, it's like the whole book is one big, long interaction between John and Jesus. Now, honestly, his interaction with John, though, and this is why I didn't, I was thinking, well, we won't do this on Mother's Day, because this interaction speaks profoundly to the heart of men, powerfully, even specifically to fathers. And it talks, I believe, to us, it, at least to me as a father, on a very confusing issue that I think a lot of us men struggle with and few of us struggle well with. And that's the issue of anger. Now, I know this is an issue for men and women, right? Like, I'm, I'm, trust me, I'm aware. <laughs> women get angry, right? Um, <laughs> but there's a reason why Ephesians 6 and Colossians 3 both specifically address the issue of anger with fathers specifically. Like Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And as with very important things that the Bible wants to hone in on in our hearts, Colossians 3 does it again. He brings it up again in Colossians 3.21, basically saying the same thing. And so why does Paul, who's writing this, why is he singling fathers out here? Like, why not just, why, why not say parents? Why is he saying fathers? Well, first of all, he's, 
I think it's highlighting a very real need for fathers specifically to lead their families and to not check out. Yes, this was an issue in the first century as well as the 21st century, right? Like it's, it's, it's a call to fathers to not just outsource their role entirely to everyone else, right? Like it's, it's an encouragement to not only be involved but to be actively engaged as a primary model for what it means to follow Jesus. Like the significance of the father's role cannot be overstated, especially since it leaves a lasting impression upon our children for what God the Father is like. So why does Paul feel the need to specifically tell both the fathers in Ephesian, the Ephesian church and the fathers in Colossian church not to provoke their kids to anger? Why doesn't he just say parents, right? Again, like, Parents, don't provoke your kids to anger. Mothers, don't provoke your kids to anger. Right? Why not? Again, I think it's, it would be valid. Like, you shouldn't do that. But he's not saying that it's okay for mothers to do this and not fathers. Like, that's not what he's saying. He's addressing a really palpable struggle, I think, that most fathers have. And this is where the Mother's Day message comes in, that most mothers have as well. But often they're dealing with the father's struggle in that home and in many ways don't even understand why this is such an issue again this is not a blanket i mean i realize this is a generalization so there are differences here but for the most part what we see here is this struggle oftentimes comes out in marriages in families and you've seen it in your own marriage and family or in your parents Maybe you've experienced it, and maybe this is the reason why your father's not around to begin with. And I know that this, is a, this can be a painful place, but this morning, I want to go there because I want you to see sort of the why behind the what and how Jesus calls us to navigate these things and how John's life speaks directly to this. You see, as a father, we have a God-given calling to protect and provide. It's a good thing. In a fallen world filled with both danger and poverty, that sense of calling is noble and good, right? To protect and provide. There's this an awakening that calls deep into the hearts of men, especially to provide and to protect. And when something threatens your children or your family or the people that you love, it can awaken some serious anger. Amen? If it doesn't, something's probably off. Right? Because anger is actually a righteous, good thing. Despite what modern society might tell us. But it can also become a consuming fire that, when it's uncontained, it gets out of control. And it can easily get misplaced and cause way more harm than good, both to you and the people that you've been called to love and protect. Again, this applies both to men and women, but you can, if you've lived in this world for any amount of time, you see how this gets really raging in many men, especially fathers. Again, this applies to both men and women, but the scriptures and lived experience confirm that this is a particular struggle 
for, for especially for fathers who struggle to keep this anger under control. So rather than provoking children to anger, which only perpetuates these generational kinds of control issues and rage issues, we're told to instead bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. What does that mean? Right? So bring them up. The verb for bring up is the Greek word ektrepho, okay? And it means to nourish or to cherish. Bring them up, nourish them, cherish them, value them. And in the way that you nourish and cherish them, you do it with this intentional training, a rewiring, so to speak, of a fallen heart that doesn't understand God's ways. That's what it's saying. That's what it means by the discipline of the Lord. Not the punishment, but the discipline. Big difference. Okay? So not just moralistic teaching, but gospel training, which focuses his love for them and the hope that they have upon Jesus and the way that he loves them at a heart level. But this requires, again, a lot of intentionality, right? Because left to ourselves, anger can get twisted into a destructive force rather than the noble calling that it's designed to be. And so it's a warning that our good, God-given anger can easily get twisted into things like excessive, severe discipline, which is actually more along the lines of punishment, punitive, reactive, right? Unreasonable or harsh demands placed on children, abusive authority, arbitrary unfairness, constant nagging and condemnation, humiliation, or like a general insensitivity to what our children or the people around us may need. And hear me, guys and ladies, nobody gets this right completely. We're all struggling with this thing, all of us, okay? And so, this is, again, why grace is so necessary, but we can't just ignore it, right? We look at this. So this often gets labeled then. When that's indulged, society calls this toxic masculinity. You ever heard that term? That's a hot one in, in our contemporary society. This society then reacts to the misuse of anger and then runs to disuse entirely for fear of abuse. Okay? But anger isn't dismissed so easily right? In fact, the suppression of it often just fuels it in explosive and extremely unhealthy ways. We see this in society today. We don't know what to do with anger. It comes out in crazy ways. And the truth is we live in a society that's really confused about what to do with anger. Like, is it good? Is it bad? How do I handle it? What do I do with it? So this morning, the Apostle John has a lot to show us about the goodness of God, even in anger. And how he even desires to redeem it as something good and godly and even righteous by tempering it with his love. After all, John was the hothead who tried to get Jesus to burn an entire village alive in Luke chapter 9. Yeah, that happened. That was the apostle of love, right? Like until Jesus, he rebukes him for what, he's like, you don't understand what you're asking. And he's like, slow down your rage. Temper this thing. Jesus even referred to John and his brother as the sons of thunder. And yet history now knows him again as, as the gentle, compassionate apostle of love. Right? Even specifically the disciple whom Jesus loved. 
So this morning, I want to look at three ways Jesus redeemed this type of anger or, or, or un, kind of toxic type of anger in John and transformed him from a son of thunder to the beloved disciple. And so these are the three ways. This is sort of our, our roadmap for the rest of our time here. The first is to let Jesus be the author and finisher of our faith and stop trying to insert yourself as the editor. <laughs> and secondly, leave vengeance to the Lord. He's sovereign and good, and he will repay so you can let it go. Thirdly, beloved by Jesus. Right? I want to say, beloved, beloved by Jesus. The heart of it all. I preached a series a few years ago on this, uh, called, through First, Second, and Third John, called Beloved. I, I love this about John's story. So here's, though, what I want you to get. If you get nothing else, this is what I want you to get. Come straight out of Ephesians 4.26. Be angry and do not sin. Be angry. It's not necessarily wrong. And do not sin. Okay? <laughs> what does that even mean? That feels like a contradiction in a society that makes angry or anger seem like it's just a completely horrible thing, which, by the way, that's not Christianity, that's Buddhism that tries to detach from emotions altogether and say that that's wrong. That's not Christianity. We serve an, a, a, actually an emotional God, right? A God who actually does get angry, but he does it in a specific, very controlled way that is highly tempered by love. In fact, it is a response of his love that he, when he does get angry. So, I want to set the scene here for you. We're going to um, look, look at John 21. We're going to start with verse 20. We're going to go through verse 25 here, but let's look at, start with verse 20. Um, so turn with me there, and, and I want to set the scene for you real quick. Um, so this is the context of what's happening. Jesus has been crucified. He's been killed. He's been buried um, just a few weeks before this in Jerusalem. He was buried in a tomb, and the majority of his disciples, including Peter, have abandoned him in a sense of fear and confusion. And then Peter even denied that he knew Jesus three times, but now Jesus has risen from the grave, and he's appeared to the disciples two times already. And he's proclaimed peace to their hearts and restoration to their souls. And, and then here, Peter and six other disciples, including John, have left Jerusalem to go on a fishing trip, okay? And so they've gone to the Sea of Galilee or the Sea of Tiberias. Um, and so uh, Jesus appears to them here a third time in chapter 21 as the resurrected, bodily resurrected Christ. He comes to them and he even prepares breakfast for them uh, over a charcoal fire, all right? So they've fished all night long. The sun is beginning to rise, and there's Jesus, and, and he calls them basically to come to him. And then Jesus takes Peter um, for a walk down the beach, all right? It's kind of just him and Peter. They go for a walk, and that's where Jesus really confronts Peter with his stuff. And that's where he restores every ounce of their relationship by awkwardly asking Peter three times if he loves him. Do you love me? You know I do, Lord feed my sheep. Do you love me? Wait, I just said I did. I really do. Right? Tend my lambs. Well, yeah, do you love me? And then he gets upset. He's, he's confronting him, and he's making him deal with the fact that he denied him three times by restoring him three times. And he does so in love, literally. 
So that's the context here. So Peter's heart has just been utterly confronted and restored by the risen Christ as they walk down this beach on the Sea of Galilee as the sun is rising over them. The lights are literally coming on. The sun has literally risen, okay? And so he's also just been told by what kind of death that he would glorify God. We looked at this last week, and he's been basically told that it's going to be a death that was like Christ's. And it would be martyrdom by crucifixion, which is what happened to Peter. And so now we're caught up. This is what's happened, okay? Look with me now again. John 21, verse 20. So they were walking down the beach, and then it says, And Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. Again, we know that whenever in the Gospel of John, uh, the disciple that's sort of labeled this way, he's talking about himself. He is the disciple whom Jesus loved. He is the beloved disciple, right? And so um, he's talking about John. And so apparently John knows all about the conversation between Jesus and Peter because John was following right behind them as they walked down the beach together. Now, you might think that's a little creepy, right? <laughs> like, like, like John's just kind of like, ah, help, what's going on? He's like in the bushes or something, like eavesdropping. But that's, I, I don't think that's necessarily what's going on. I want you to see the picture here. Um, this would have been another indication uh, on just how close Jesus and John and Peter actually were. Like, in fact, the rest of this verse even verifies the intimacy between these three describing John as, quote, the one who also had leaned back against him, meaning Jesus, during the supper, and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? Now, that's a reference to the night before Jesus was crucified uh, during the Last Supper, right? In John 13, where Jesus tells the disciples that one of them's going to betray him. And so the 12 disciples look at each other like, who's he talking about? Is it you? Is it you? Is it me? Is it me? Right? And they go around in circles. They're like, who could it be? And then in verse 23 um, and 24, it says that one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side, which means that John, he's talking about John, and he's close to Jesus, both in location and relationship. Like, they're just hanging out, they're comfortable together, right? They're not, like, spooning, that's weird, right? That's, that some people are like, oh, they're, like, all over, that's weird. He's probably, like, some, like, friends, he's got his arm around him, maybe. Like, they're just hanging out, like, this is a, they were, like, best friends, right? That's what we see here. And so there's a comfort, there's a, there's a, there's a, even a potentially vulnerability there, right? There's, like, a good intimacy between Jesus and John, the beloved disciple. So, um, John's close to him in location and relationship. And so verse 24 says that, so Simon Peter motioned to John to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. In other words, John and Peter have this kind of like inner circle of trust happening here, right? Like Peter's not really skeptical that John is the one, he's like, I know you, you're not the guy. You're not the one who's going to betray Jesus. And so he's like, who is it? You know, that's literally what it does. And so you see this. And so, um, honestly, as I mentioned last week, I think that Jesus wanted John to witness Peter's restoration. Because after that happened, remember, it was Peter who's like clearly oblivious to his own heart at this point. And yes, the one that would betray him would be Judas, right? But Peter, thinking, I would never do this, did in fact deny him. Shocking even to his own heart, I think. And so, 
This is a, that was a flashback to what was happening. Just to show the inner circle, the, the trust there between Peter and John and even Jesus in this process. And so, honestly, as I mentioned last week, I think Jesus wanted John to witness Peter's restoration as they're walking down the beach so he could remind him that he is restored and there is no barrier between him and Jesus when he forgets, right? Because oftentimes we forget what we heard in the light when things get dark and we need a close friend who knows your relationship with Jesus as well or maybe even sometimes better than you do this is why gospel community is so important we need those kinds of friends in our lives people who can remind you in the dark of what God has said in the light amen so remember that after Peter denied Jesus three times we find Peter with John on the morning of the resurrection. Like he finds solace even in his shame with his friend John. They were together. They were together when they hear the news that the tomb is empty and they literally raced to see it for themselves. And so there's this tight brotherhood here and we see it. So it's not weird for him to be sort of eavesdropping. He's accepted into this thing. You see that? It's important. Verse 21. So when Peter saw him, meaning John, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Remember, Peter's just been told the, in the way he's going to die. So he looks and he says, what about John? Jesus just told Peter about his death, and so here he's asking jo about John's death. What about him? What's his story? Right? Now, is this because he cares about John? I think so, yeah. I think he cares about John a lot. Or maybe it's because he's comparing himself to John. I think that's a piece of it too, right? I think that there's a sense of, of, of feeling like I need to be good enough. I think we see this in Peter's life a lot. After all, John didn't deny he knew Jesus and was even present at the foot of the cross as Jesus died. So I think there's a bit of both going on in his heart here. Uh, people are complicated. It's not normally just cut and dry one issue or another. We're like Time Magazine. We got lots of issues, right? So... <laughs> This is normally the way it goes. So, in any case, Jesus responds saying, verse 22, if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Whew! There's a lot of freedom in that, guys. I'm going to show you why. There's a lot of freedom in that. Verse 23, so the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it's my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? In other words, people took this so, people want to try and edit their story so bad. They want to control it so much that a rumor had gone around that John wasn't going to die until Jesus showed up. And John here is saying to them, no, that's not what he said right? That's not what he's saying here. He said, if that's what he wants, what is that to you? In other words, John's kind of saying to his readers here in the early church, like, what is it to you anyway? Let it go. Why do you feel the need to insert your opinion or your ideas or your edits on the future and this story? Which again leads me to the first point that let Jesus be the author and finisher of our faith and stop trying to insert yourself as the editor. Okay? I have a few friends who 
have written multiple books, and, and they, they work with editors and publishers, and it's a common frustration that they voice, and they, they, they have when they send their final draft to the publisher, and, and then they, they, they go through this, like, editing process, and they just rip it to shreds and often, like, tear up even their good content, and they send the book back or their final draft, and they say, you know, here are the things that we want you to change about your story so that it'll be more attractive to the readers, Right? It's like a common frustration that authors have. And so this is actually what Peter's attempting to do here. Jesus just offered him a powerful encouragement by affirming that he has what it takes to faithfully, faithfully finish his race as it's been marked out for him, even though it will lead to a cross. Where he abandoned for fear of the cross before, Jesus is now affirming, hey, my love is enough for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My spirit now resides in you. You will finish this race strong. It's an affirmation. It's an encouragement. That's what he's saying here to Peter. Before he wasn't faithful, and he cut and run. But now Jesus is affirming and encouraging him that he, in fact, will not deny him again. <laughs> that would have been a major part of his restoration. That wasn't daunting to him. That would have been really affirming and encouraging to Peter's heart. It was a kindness from Christ. But, as is Peter is prone to do, and so are many of us, he tried to take that kindness a step further than it was intended. And he's like, wow, that's my story. Cool. Now do John. Right? What about him? And Jesus is like, what about him? Jesus knows what's in the hearts of men, and he knows that nothing good can come from him telling Peter John's story. And honestly, he doesn't feel the need to tell John his story either, as far as we know. Right? And so Jesus isn't even giving Peter the opportunity to position himself as the editor here. Right? It's really easy. Hear this. It's really easy for us to look to other people's stories and pick them apart. Like, to take offense at how other people are dealing with other people's stories or take offense at the story that they've been given by Jesus and insert ourselves in it and take offense at something that we're not even involved in. But Jesus isn't allowing Peter to insert himself as the editor of John's story. Like, I don't think he's malicious in this. I think he loves John. I really do, but I also think there's a part of him that's comparing himself to John. You see, if God has more of a difficult road for John, what is that to Peter? Peter, you follow me. John, you follow me. On the way, love each other. Right? Oftentimes, we'll pick up a bitterness towards God because of the circumstance of somebody else that God's doing a powerful work in. Gotta let it go. Like, if, if God has an easier road for John, what is that to Peter? Right? Jesus is saying, stop trying to be the editor and just follow me. Trust that I love you, and I love him, and follow me. You're not the sovereign judge. Jesus is. A lot of toxic anger is the result of inserting yourself in the storyline that's really none of your business. Now, I'm not talking about bearing one another's burdens, right? This is what I mean by love one another in the process, okay? I'm talking about taking offense at, at, at even God, not just for your circumstances, but for the circumstances that aren't even your own. Because some of the most, again, toxic rage in our society emanates from that kind of bitter desire to edit other people's story, which is really a bitterness towards the God who's the author of the story. 
rather than just trusting that the author is good and he has an ultimate good in mind and to walk with him, follow him in the process and trust him. John's story is John's story. Peter's story is Peter's story. Your story is your story. And so the key to navigating all of this is to simply follow Jesus and love one another the way that he loved us in the process. This is definitely an issue, though, for John, the son of thunder. In fact, earlier in Christ's ministry with the disciples, the disciples get into an argument about which one of them is the greatest, okay? Um, And and like John's mom even gets into this thing. John and James' mom, (laughs) the, the, the sons of Zebedee, like John's mom even goes up to Jesus and asks him to have her sons, James and John, sit at Jesus' left and right hand when he inherits the kingdom, right? Like that's a bold move. Think about that. That's a bold move. Like this was the son of thunder's mom, by the way, which she had a little thunder in her, I'm sure, as well. Um, However, incidentally, she was also at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. So let's not knock her too much. It's almost as though there's a sense of anger in her heart that led to good things. Courage. You see that? Because she didn't leave. Jesus is basically like, when she says this, though, again, similar to the way that he addressed John, he's basically like, ma'am, I love you, but you don't know what you're asking for, and you don't know what you're talking about. It's essentially how he talks to her. And then he calls his disciples after this, and they're arguing over, like, who's the greatest of the disciples, and, and young John, right in the midst of it all, right, he's right in the center of that debate, of who's the best, and, and they're comparing, you see this? this is, it's like locker room talk, right? Again, this is... Very. If you've ever been in a locker room with a bunch of dudes, especially, they jostle. They position. They're jabbing all the time, trying to press one down so that they can step up on the other. It's a pride-shame spectrum. It's pure insecurity, right? I love you guys, but it's true, right? This is stuff we struggle with, okay? And so here we have, this is a very similar situation to John, like John's life, right? And so you get this interaction, um, and I think this interaction particularly is pivotal in John's journey from being a son of thunder to a beloved disciple. Look at Mark 9, verse 35. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now that's going to require a whole lot of security. Verse 36. And he took a child... And he put him in the midst of them. Get the visual. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, remember who he's talking to. These are the disciples. These are the people that are going to grow, plant and grow the church and shepherd it. These are the ones he's calling to feed my sheep. You are these people as well. Verse 37, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. In other words, it's not about you. It's not about the fact, you don't look at a kid and you're like, man, I'm so much smarter than you. Right? Like I don't look at my like three-year-old and I'm like, pfft. You think that's good dancing? 
Let me show you what I got. <laughs> right? Like that's making it about us, right? Like it's about God's kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying here. It's about God's kingdom and God's children. It's about loving them with the love that you've received from him. Look at the next verse. Verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. This is the content. Like, Jesus has got a child in his lap. And this is where John's head goes. Like, how does that even have anything to do with what Jesus just said? Like, Jesus is trying to tell him about how it's not about them. And, and then John's like, here's my chance to tell him about how he stuck up for him. As if Jesus, Jesus needs anybody to stick up for him. Right? So just, just imagine this. Like young John, who's likely the youngest of the disciples, he's a guy who spent his entire life up to this point as the younger son of an ancient Galilean fisherman named Zebedee, who was probably a blue, not probably, he was like a blue-collar, salty-as-they-come fisherman. Okay? Like manual labor like this, even in our society, doesn't normally produce the most soft people. Okay? Especially in the first century AD, I got a feeling this dude was a bit of a roughneck, okay? This was John's dad, and this was the context that he would have grown up in. And so, like, on top of all of that, John would have been, spent his entire life trying to keep up with his older brother James and Peter, who were probably, as we've seen, especially Peter, he was a performance-oriented, make-it-happen kind of guy. This is who John was looking up to. This is who John was trying to keep up with. So John's a guy who's kind of in the background because of his youth, but when he speaks early on in the ministry, it's often normally pretty explosive. Just because they're quiet doesn't mean they're nice, right? It's almost like he's something, got something to prove and he feels the need to insert himself here. So imagine like how this interaction between John and the guy that's casting out the demons would have gone. Like think about this. Like you got a guy who's casting, first of all, he's casting out demons. And he's doing it in Jesus' name. That's a radical thing in and of itself. That was not a common thing, okay? That was, this is a guy who has discovered there's power in Jesus' name and there's deliverance here. And so he's casting out demonic strongholds in people in the name of Jesus. Notice it doesn't say he was attempting to cast out demons in Jesus' name. It says he was doing it. But John rolls up and he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, I don't know you. Right? Like, we don't know you. You're not following us. You weren't there when, when Peter walked on water. Remember that? That was awesome. I was there. I saw it. inner circle that's me right that's kind of what he's doing here like he, he's he's like i don't know about you back of the line these demons are for the in crowd right performing he's he's trying to lift himself up he's not seeing the point at all he's focused on himself it's so arrogant and silly when you think about it but it gives us a little insight into john the son of thunder's mindset and yet jesus look at how jesus responds to him Right? Jesus doesn't react in kind. Right? He doesn't shame him. He doesn't, like, you know, he, he, he does rebuke him, but he does it in love. Listen to this. Verse 39. He says, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in the name 
in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. So he goes right to the why behind the what, right? In other words, like, if he's casting demons out in my name, which, by the way, again, how powerful is just the name of Jesus, right? This guy doesn't even know him, but he's, and yet God is doing amazing works in a man who's not even really a Christian. There's a lot of people who do amazing works and don't know him. Does that make sense? It happens. It happens all the time. There's some powerful preachers preaching some powerful stuff, and it's good truth. And then you find out they never even were following Jesus in the first place. You know what? That truth, still true. Right? But here we have, that's a, that's a side note, time back in. Um, <laughs> so so we, we, we see this situation, and he's, he's casting out these demons in Jesus' name, and, and Jesus is speaking to him, and he says, quit, quit trying to make this about you. That's a good thing. God's people are being delivered from demons. Quit trying to make it about you. Right? He says the best part about this scene is that he's like, if he's doing this in my name, he's going to realize soon my name has power. It's good. He's going to start following me eventually, maybe, hopefully. <laughs> but the best part about that scene here is that Jesus would likely have still had that little child in his lap through the whole interaction. Right? Like the long-suffering patience of God is on vivid display here because to him we're all these little children. John, son of thunder, was like a little child. And Jesus is just patiently teaching him, walking with him. Right? He doesn't compromise, but he's extremely compassionate towards him and patient as he is with all of you. This is how he changes us and calls us to do the same with one another. He's patiently loving him so well. He's compassionate, compassionate yet completely uncompromising. He's steadfast and consistent. He's stable like a good, good father who loves and disciplines and trains his children. He's not irritated. He's not annoyed. He's not ashamed of John. He's long-suffering. He's slow to anger and allowing John to learn what he needs to learn. And it's Christ's compassion without compromise that allows John to take his eyes off of himself in the security of Christ's presence and acceptance of him, and then his anger begins to be tempered by that love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once talked about three stages that people often walk through in their spiritual maturity. And, and the first stage, he said, was like people become, they start to, you know, realize that sin is real, and it's heavy, and it's offensive to God. And they start to see how heavy that sin actually is, and they start to hate it and become disgusted with sin in general. And they're, they're like, you, you know, he's like, that's a good thing. But then they begin to see how much sin is actually in people around them and in the church. And it makes them angry, even rageful. And they, they, they see the hypocrisy of the church, and they start, they just can't handle it. And they, they start reacting to the disillusionment, and they're like, look at all this sin. You're supposed to be the church, you're gross. So they leave the church, they start bashing the church, right? And they, they pull out and they start, you know, these people that are constantly like as if they are the real Christians and the church is like the fake, like institutionalized whatever. And they completely lost sight of Christ's love for people. And in their impatience, they isolate. The good news is that's only stage one. Stage two is when they realize that they still have very real struggles with sin also. Stage two is that they become more concerned with their own sin than everybody else's. 
Stage two is when their own sin becomes more disgusting to them than other people's sins. That's not a sign of going backwards, by the way. That's actually a sign of growth. Right? You're starting to become aware of what's actually in your heart. And you don't ignore it, but you go, wow, I am them. And again, the good news here is this is only stage two. Bonhoeffer then says stage three is the most important stage. He says this is when you actually begin to recognize and walk in the grace of Jesus Christ. That's when you're ready to re-enter the church, not as a self-righteous Pharisee who's there to condemn everybody else and judge everybody else, but as a humble sinner saved by grace and ready to point others to the same grace that you found in Christ and the same acceptance that you found in Him and that same relationship and patience that He walks with you. You then invite others to walk with you as well in Him and point others to Jesus. It's almost as though you get to share life in Christ or something together. Right? And that's spiritual maturity. Right? It's almost like you take the uh, plank out of your own eye instead of just looking at the sawdust in your brother's eye. Sound familiar? That's what Jesus said. Which leads me to the second point. Leave vengeance to the Lord. He's sovereign and he's good and he will repay so you can let it go. It's important to realize that, again, it's... it's it, it, Anger itself isn't a bad thing. In fact, it's a very godly emotion. Like God gets angry, and I'm not just talking about the God of the Old Testament as if, again, somehow you know, he's different from the God of the New Testament, right? Like the God of the Old Testament is angry, but Jesus is just always, never. He never gets rattled, right? But again, Jesus is not Buddha, okay? And by the way, Buddha got angry. I don't care what anybody says. But, the, the, I mean, you know, this is the God who's tipping over tables, Right? And so I've told you before that people who believe that, by the way, who think that the Old Testament God and the New Testament God are different, they haven't read the Old Testament or the New Testament because he's the same God. He's unchanging. And in Jesus, we're given all the perfect characteristics of what he's like. And yes, Jesus did get really angry, but he never sinned. Never sinned. Anger itself isn't bad. Anger itself is, in fact, in the light of certain injustices, actually the lack of anger would be sinful. And there's a lot of injustice in this world. And I got to tell you guys, sometimes, not sometimes, often, I get angry. I get angry. But that anger is a response to my love for God and his people. And that anger moves me. But it moves me to behold him and to trust in him. This is why Ephesians 4 tells us to be angry and do not sin. See, anger is actually a necessary part of true love especially when sin and injustice and, 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 and the, the brokenness of this world is involved. Like when you encounter something that's hurting or even killing those you love, it should make you angry. It's what moves us to do something, and it's what moves God to do something. This is the heart of the gospel, right? It was God's anger that moved him to save his children from that which was killing them. God is not distant or unmoved by the state of creation. It makes him angry. In fact, the Bible often describes him even as jealous. The Hebrew word in the Old Testament for jealous is literally red in the face. You see, he loves you, and therefore he's angry at anything that would hurt you, and he knows that he's the best thing for you, and therefore his anger is kindled towards and against anything that would pull your heart away from him. And if you've got children, you know that when one child hurts another child, 
it'll kindle that fatherly anger in you. Right? But it's also like, okay, like if my son hurts my daughter, I'm like, protect my daughter, crush the son. But I'm like, but I love my son too. (laughs) And so there's a tension here. Right? And it needs to be tempered in love. And that's when Jesus, he talks about children. And he says it's better. You hear this in his voice. And he talks about children in another place. He says that it's better for someone to have a two-ton boulder or a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the ocean than for them to harm one of these little ones. I don't care what you say. He's angry. Even at the thought of someone harming one of these children, that's a good God. That's righteous anger. That's the heart of a good and loving God. So there's multiple examples of Jesus being angry, and of course none of them are sinful, but it's important to see that his anger is not rage, and there is a difference. Rage is when our egos get involved. Rage is when something good and godly is corrupted by our sin and a desire to be God rather than be like God. Rage is an attempt to control and manipulate the world around you because you feel like it's out of your control and you want to be in control. It's a perversion of righteous anger and it's not only unhelpful, it's toxic. Rage exacts vengeance upon others not for the sake of love, but for the sake of yourself. Not for the sake of justice, but for the sake of your own control and ego. Think about this. St. Augustine, or Augustine, um, however you want to say it, he wrote about our emotions being like smoke from a fire, and they help us understand what's really going on in our hearts. If you trace that smoke, it's like it leads to a fire, right? And so if you're angry, then it's an opportunity for you to trace that anger to the root and ask, what am I actually angry about? Like, is this anger good, or is it causing me to sin? Is it sinful? Is it rageful? Is it toxic? Is it, is it, is it uh, destructive or actually constructive? Augustine said that the root of our sin is actually disordered loves. Like you love something out of proportion. You love something more than you love God, then you will become extremely angry in protecting that false love. That leads to rage. J.D. Greer once said, if what we love is messed up, then our anger will be messed up too. It is not wrong, for example, to value your name and reputation, but if you love those things too much, you will get inordinately angry when your ego is insulted. If you love control or convenience, then when those things are threatened, you'll get angry. Whenever something makes you mad, you should always ask yourself what your anger is defending. So often what we'll find is that our anger isn't just about protecting or providing for anyone but ourselves. And it's become a twisted version of what God designed it to be. And that's when it turns into that uncontrolled rage. That's when instead of disciplining and training our children in the light of their sin, we get offended because how dare they do that? Or, or how dare they speak to me that way? Or embarrass me like that in public? Ugh. So instead of cool-headed, consistent discipline, it can become a reaction to personal offense. And we think we then need to exact vengeance upon them and punish them instead of discipline them. Big difference. So this applies to all relationships, not just children. Like whether it's your kids, whether it's your marriage, whether it's your friends, coworkers, or the guy who cut, off, cut you off while you're driving here or that stoplight that would not turn because it was broken. Might have happened to me this morning. Um, 
<laughs> some, some, of you, some of you are like, amen. Um, P.S. God always uses illustrations in my life of the things that I'm preaching on. It's like, he's just like, hey, look, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you face your stuff, right? Because I'm preaching to a mirror here, right? Like, this is, this is not just, this is about Jesus, right? So, like, it, again, like, there's this deep sense of offense and a desire for vengeance that can well up in us, especially if you've been hurt before. Rage can then become what an insecure and anxious heart does in order to regain control or protect itself. It's not protective. It's not a response to love. It's not constructive at all. It's just destructive and toxic. So the reason it becomes your, the reason for that is because it's, you're trying to be the God of judgment yourself. But that's not what you were designed for. This is why Romans 12, 19 quotes from the Old Testament saying, verse 19, beloved, say beloved. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Like, you are not the ultimate judge, he is. You're not the author, he is. You're not designed to carry around this burden, it will eat you alive. If you're trying to make sure every wrong is made right and everybody gets what they deserve and that you are made, that you yourself are justified in that relationship constantly, and they're all under you so that you can feel safe and protected, it's going to eat you alive. Because the truth is, if that were the case, if everybody got what they deserved, then all of creation would have been obliterated a long time ago, including you. The only one justified in exacting that vengeance has provided another way. So yes, God gets angry, but the way he gets angry is extremely controlled. It's extremely intentional. The book of Proverbs talks a lot about God's anger, and it, it doesn't say that he has no anger, but it does say that he's slow to anger. In fact, the original Hebrew describes God as, when it says slow to anger, I love this, it literally means long in the nostrils. I love that image. Think about that. You know what it's slow to anger? It's long in the nostrils. It's, it's a picture of him going, for a long time, like thousands of years. You ever done that? Kids do something? You're just like, like instead of being like, ah! you know, it's like, close your mouth. Slow to anger. He's long in the nostrils. That means when, we, when he encounters offensive nature of our sin, the image of him is taking that deep, long in the nostrils breath. This is what we see him doing constantly in creation and what we see him doing in Jesus. His anger is tempered by love. It's like, that's my son. That's my daughter. I love them. I love them. He's not watering down the offensive nature of our sin or the necessity of justice. He will, in fact, repay. The question, though, is how? All sin is against God, and all of it will be repaid. Either it's going to be dealt with in eternal condemnation, or it's going to be dealt with at the cross. But all of it's going to be repaid. All of it. It'll all either be poured out on Jesus on behalf of the people who have reckoned the offense, or it'll be on their heads. See, this is the gospel. 
that God became a man and he lived the life we couldn't live and he died the death we deserved to die. And he conquered death in the grave and he paved the way to eternal life that starts now, not just one day when we die, but it starts now through the indwelling of his spirit. He conquered it through the resurrection and now we can have eternal life that starts now, intimate relationship as sons and daughters of the Most High King with his spirit indwelling us and changing us from the inside out and securing us in his gracious love that says that's all paid for. Now love as you've been loved and forgive as you've been forgiven and let it go. Vengeance is mine, not yours. He feels it, it changes our hearts and he relieves us of the need to exact vengeance, but instead to then love people with the love that we've been loved with and forgive people just as we've been forgiven because we can let vengeance go because we know he won't and he hasn't. He will repay. The question is, Again, will it be paid at the cross or will it be paid in eternity? When you realize the weight of your own sin, you realize just how much you've been forgiven and how much you've been loved in Christ and that he is the judge and he actually does have this thing, that's when you can let it go and you can trust him and then you begin to pray even for your enemies. Like this is how John went from a son of thunder to the beloved disciple. Like It's right there in that identity that he claimed he is. I, 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 he's received God's love. I am the one whom Jesus loved. He's humbly received what Jesus did for him and the love and the forgiveness he declared over him. Like John has accepted that he is accepted. Have you? Right? Like when you get rageful, the question is, are you being loved right now, beloved? Or are you trying to prove something in your insecurity? Are you trying to control something or someone? Are you trying to be God? I know it sounds a little hokey, but it's everything. Like it's, this is even the foundation for Paul's encouragement to the Romans in 1219. Look at what he said. Beloved, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But how, how do you leave it, though? Like, how? How do you just leave it, especially when you've been really hurt? Like, how do you just leave it? You're beloved. What's that mean? Listen to the way Proverbs talks about righteous anger. Look at this. Proverbs 16.32 says, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. You've been empowered by the Spirit of God to rule your spirit. Control it, temper it. How? In love. What's that mean? You look at the way Jesus loves you and accept that you are accepted. It'll change everything. Proverbs 29, 11, A fool gives full vent to his spirit, but a wise man quietly holds it back. Like you don't need a baseball bat and an old beat-up car to go let it out. All you're doing is indulging your own carnality. That does not work. That's some messed-up psychology from the 60s. Yeah, and like we look at what happens in the 60s. It didn't work, right? <laughs> Proverbs 29, verse 22 says, A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression. So you never give yourself over to it. What do you do? Long in the nostrils. Right? Temperate by love. James 1.19 says, Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. 
Proverbs 15.1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Like, you don't have to jump all over and react to every little thing around you, especially in your spouse, right? Like, that's not being a provider or protector or a secure and beloved child of God. It's operating as an insecure, wounded animal who's isolated and backed into a corner. It's not your calling. It's not who you are. Look to Jesus and go... Proverbs 19.11, good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. Now, you might say overlook an offense, but that rewards bad behavior, and they'll just keep doing it over and over and over again. That's right, and you're going to have to forgive seven times 70, which means infinitely. Again, words of Jesus, and you're secure in that because he has secured you. What it means is you can actually let it go. And I don't mean walk around with passive-aggressive remarks all the time. I don't mean when somebody does that, you just go over to them and you're like, okay, <laughs> it's not what that means. <laughs> but even when that does happen, you know what? The other person can also let it go, right? He's saying don't hold on to your anger. Ephesians 4, when it talks about uh, the sun going, not letting the sun go down on our anger in Ephesians 4. He's saying, actually, don't hold on to your anger. He's not saying stay up all night and fight it out. He's saying, let it go. Entrust it to me. Let Jesus carry it for you or you're going to have sleepless nights of bitterness and it's going to rot you from the inside out. You're not the judge. You're not the one that is exacting vengeance. Leave it to him. Leave it to him. And he gives his beloved sleep. Let's look at Ephesians 26 and 27. And I'm wrapping it up, man. I'm telling you. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Again, like don't let, don't let conflict go underground, right? But honestly, this is saying take your issue before the Lord and let him have it. Like, don't give the enemy a stronghold of bitterness in your heart because you won't let your offense go. Give it to him and let his grace cover it. Ephesians 4, 29-31 says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is, good for, as is good for building up, right? Not tearing down, which is rage. Anger actually calls us to build up. It's something that moves us and stirs us to build one another up as fits the occasion, right? That it may give grace to those who hear and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption because yes, the Holy Spirit, yes, God is grieved. Yes, he is emotional and that is good and healthy. You can grieve him by holding on to your bitterness. It's clear that that's what happens. He loves you, he's never forsaken you, but we don't want to hurt the heart of God, amen? Because we love him because he's first loved us. So let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And how do we do this? How do we go from a son of thunder to the disciple whom Jesus loves? You be loved. You behold him. John 21, last two verses here. John 21, 24, and 25. This is what he says. John says, this is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. He's saying, I saw it. I know him. I've been there. I've experienced it. I've walked with him. Verse 25. There's so many, like, there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them to be written, I suppose the world could not itself 
contained the books that would be written. In other words, he's received his identity. He's walked with him from the beginning, right? John 1 opens, I'm sorry, 1 John verse 1 opens with this. It says, that which was from the beginning, look at this, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes. He's talking about Jesus which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest. We've seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things so that our joy may be complete in you, you are completing this. He's like, I want you to know the love that I've experienced in Christ. I want you to be his beloved disciple the way that I am. This is how you go from son of thunder, insecure, rageful, controlling, anxious, to a beloved disciple. This is how you go from having thin skin and a hard heart to having thick skin and a soft heart. Forgiving as you've been forgiving, forgiven, loved as you've been loved. Being angry and yet not sinning. And we know, in, look, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he rails on heresy. Rails on it. John gets really upset often against things that pull people away from Jesus. Why? Because he loves Jesus and he loves people. But he does it all tempered in love. Amen? Be angry and do not sin. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Let's pray.